I'm Micah Utrecht, Associate Editor at Jacobin Magazine. We are very happy to bring you a new podcast from Susie Weissman. Susie is a professor of politics at St. Mary's College of California, the author most recently of Victor Surge, a political biography, and she's a longtime radio host. She'll be coming to you regularly at Jacobin Radio, so if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. You'll hear all of our shows there, including The Dig from Dan Denver, Stockton to Malone from R.L. Stevens and me, and other discussions with Jacobin contributors. Also, if you feel so moved, do rate and review us and tell your friends on social media about us. Okay, here's Susie. Welcome to a new podcast. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm joined for our inaugural show by Jacobin Magazine founder and editor Bhaskar Sunkara and UCLA historian Robert Brenner. Bhaskar is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine, and it's probably the most successful leftist journal in American history with its explicitly neo-Marxist orientation and activist bent. The fall issue is called The Party We Need. The website's visited by millions. There's 20,000 subscriptions, and I could possibly be corrected on that by now since it grows every day. It's a gorgeous print journal that comes out quarterly, and there are now Jacobin reading groups all over the country. Since the election of Donald Trump, the subscriptions to Jacobin have surged, as has the membership of all kinds of left organizations, but in particular DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. The Bernie Sanders campaign showed us there's a left in the U.S. with a great deal of sympathy for socialist ideas, however well they're understood. The millions who voted for Bernie have not retreated, and they're on the front lines every day, resisting each new executive order, appointment, atrocity, and move. And I think we should begin with that. Let me introduce one more time. I have Bhaskar Sunkara and Robert Brenner. He's a professor of history at UCLA and the director of the Center for Social Theory and Comparative History, and the author of, among other books, the Economics of Global Turbulence, The Boom and the Bubble, The Brenner Debates, and Merchants and Revolution. And he is the co-editor of a new journal that will be put out by Jacobin Magazine called Catalyst. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Okay. So I think what we'll do is just start with the present. We have a new age of Trump. And at the same time, we have this tremendous resistance that's grown up to it. So let me get from each of you, just your sort of appreciation of where we are today? Well, I think that obviously this is a bad time for the world, the country, for at every unit of scale, it's a bad time for people. But the left, we really are now seeing some growth and some energy, partially because the center has so, so thoroughly discredited themselves. We thought, a lot of us thought at Jacob and a lot of us broadly on the left thought that maybe probably even, Clintonism would be in the long run not capable of taking on Trumpism. But we did think that Clinton would be able to take on a candidate so buffoonish and gaff-prone as Donald Trump. I don't think we necessarily underestimated Trump. I think we overestimated Clintonism. And I think now you're starting to see people really look for alternative visions in politics. And this goes back to Bernie Sanders. Can you imagine how bad our situation would be like if the number two candidate 
to Hillary Clinton was Martin O'Malley <laughs> if we didn't have the experience of Sanders and Sandersism. So I think with that, we see the potential social majority we have right away for obviously an insufficient response, but still a form of social democracy that we haven't seen articulated on a mass scale in the United States in decades and decades. Robert Brenner, let's bring you into this conversation, and maybe you could also situate this particular conjuncture, I guess you could say, that we're in, in terms of what brought it about. Yeah, I think that how Bhaskar put it was totally on target. I would perhaps even be a little bit more, quote, optimistic, or put it like this. I think the left has an opening of the sort that it has not had in memory. And I think if we look back just a few weeks, right after the election itself, when everyone was still in shock, people looked around and realized it was not such a crazy outcome as had initially registered. Here's the New York Times. The day after the election, after the Times had, of course, uncritically backed Clinton and said everything was fine, they said, as the dust settled, Democrats recognized two central problems of Clinton's Flawed candidacy, her decades in Washington, paid speeches she delivered to financial institutions, left her unable to tap into the anti-establishment, anti-Wall Street rage, and she seated the white working class voters who backed Mr. Clinton in 1992. And furthermore, they said the result of that was that they went and targeted college-educated suburban voters rather than the working class. Now, it seems to me this is the place where we can unpack what Bhaskar was just saying, which is that the Clinton candidacy, which follows, of course, from Obama, which follows from Mr. Clinton, is a neoliberal candidacy, meaning that basically the Democratic Party is looking more than ever to support from the top capitalists for funding, and ironically also from well-off middle-class and upper-class voters, not by accident, but because they realize that if they're going to support the neoliberal politics, their own politics, they cannot carry out a very sharp pro-working-class politics. This, of course, was what opened the way to the populist campaign of Trump, which was all over the map, but nonetheless focused in from the standpoint of the message it was getting across rather than what it was going to actually do necessarily, focused in on the support for finance, the globalization trade that was going to hurt people, the immigration that was supposedly going to hurt people, even foreign policy was supposed to be ratcheted down to save money. So Trump put forward this, we all know, this right-wing kind of politics in addition to all the other things that he put forward, which set him in line with the populist right on a world scale. And of course, Trump won. So where does that leave us? I just move very quickly. You would think now that perhaps the Democrats would, in response to this catastrophic defeat, try to adjust to this populist surge and try to capture it. But it seems to me very unlikely they're going to do this for the very reason that Clinton took the political line she did. In the summer of 2016, as the election was going, Schumer, speaking for the Democrats, said, look what we have to do 
is get the upper middle class suburbs. We'll get two votes for every one of them that we lose in working class communities, say, in Western Pennsylvania. We'll get the suburban Philadelphia compared to Western Pennsylvania. And so that is their strategy, their politics, and they do not have an easy time moving to a populist or working class position. This opens things up, it seems to me, in a very big way for the left because the political leadership of the Democratic Party, while it does not obviously want to, we can cash this out in a minute, does not want to depend on mass action from below, of course, but on the other hand, they're put in a terrible position with regard to it. They can't really but support it because of the extremity of the positions that Trump is taking. So in a sense, we've never had it so good in that we can go out and demonstrate by the, well, the millions on the Women's March and tens of thousands opposing the Trump ban on immigration. And there's no cops out there arresting us. There's no local mayors cracking down. Of course, there's limits on this. Let's not get too carried away. But I just want to end on that idea of a wide open space for us. And what we need to do is take it in the direction of politics that speak to workers' needs across the board. Let me just ask Bhaskar to come in on this. Bob's done something that is quite hopeful and optimistic. And on the one hand, there is that optimism everywhere, and I share it. But on the other hand, people are really frightened by all of these fast and furious executive orders that are not only curbing liberties, but basically overturning everything that they thought was progressive, or maybe not. But how do you see this period, and how do you respond to the sort of pressure that's being put on the Democrats, who many have said are now having to find a few vertebrae to be able to stand up straight? I would say that, of course, there's mass discontent with not just Trump, but the political class in general in this country. And that lends itself to a broad populist anti-establishment mood. And Trump was able to tap into that, but only at a superficial level. So that, of course, would lead us to believe that if we had a left populist response or alternative, that would be enough to even win political, well, I shouldn't say political power, but at least the White House in 2020. And within that tent, maybe a more radical socialist currents could emerge and thrive and prosper. So, of course, I see that angle. And, of course, a lot of the work that I do, a lot of the work that Jackman does is premised on that belief. Now, where I'm a little bit more pessimistic is that I look at the actual terrain of social forces and I see where are the concentrated militant groups of people that have the power and leverage to actually disrupt the economy? And I think compared to other periods of mass upsurge in the 1930s and the 1960s, I just don't see that there. So in other words, I've said this before, it's been said about the UK context by Andrew Murray and others, but we're seeing the emergence of a new class politics, but without really a class base. So we really need to think about what it would look like when we have national right to work, and the labor movement, as bad as it's been, is even further degraded. And then these units of resistance, these units of struggles keep getting smaller and smaller, more isolated and disconnected from each other. So we still are able to have these big demonstrations and marches and whatnot, but they don't actually have the social power and leverage to really 
present some sort of alternative. So I don't think Trump will be reelected in 2020, but I didn't think he was going to be elected in 2016 to begin with. But I also am not clear that we can piece together something resembling a governing coalition that can not only win a couple elections, but actually push through the reforms and demands that we need to get passed, not just to alleviate some of the suffering people are experiencing, but also to reconstitute the social forces needed to push things in an even more transformative direction. So I'll take it to you, Robert Brenner. That's very provocative because essentially Bhaskar is ceding that the National Right to Work statute law will be passed and that the unions will be further hobbled. That has always been the goal of the Kochs and others who see the unions not so much in their economic context as fighting for better living standards, but the fact that they fund the opposition party and that that's really what they're trying to crush. It hasn't been that much of an opposition in this period in terms of the policies put forward. But how do you respond to the deeper sort of significance of the things that Bhaskar just brought up? Well, I think Bhaskar, again, hit it on the head because if, on the one hand, in terms of broad social base, the left has a tremendous opening for the reason, one, that the Democratic Party is unlikely to fill this gap. And it's wonderful that the mass movement, such as it is, is out in force at Chuck Schumer's house every night trying to keep him honest, so to speak, on the straight and narrow in actually opposing Trump and not finding some media via middle way for which they can come together because there really still is a great deal that they can find in common. So that is the one side of it, which is this opening in which the Democrats have their backs to the wall in some sense, and the movement has the wind at its back in some sense. But I think Bhaskar puts his finger on it, which is that, and this is the problem that we have faced going on 30 years or more since the 70s, which is that the labor movement, which has been the main source of, quote, reform in the old sense, initiatives and legislation, meaning social legislation, supportive of the broad masses of the people from Social Security on down, that movement is ever weaker. And I want to emphasize, sadly, ever more bureaucratized, meaning that the leadership continues, as always, for a long, long time, to find the way forward for itself in, paradoxically, sadly, the Democratic Party. Their main tactic is to win for the Democrats. And we know that the Democrats, time and time again, do not deliver for them and indeed practically from day one say we're not going to deliver for you. So this is what Bhaskar has posed for us. How do we build some sort of institutionalized movement, meaning an organizations that can actually take up a program and take up a struggle for it in the absence of the movement that has been the basis of this across the world for the 20th century. This is the huge issue that we face. And I think it's probably the case that there is no longer a simple 
direct connection between social base and political organization like we had for the 20th century, working class, social democratic or labor organization, and these two in some kind of symbiosis fighting for reform. The degree that that was based, frankly, on an industrial working class, which is alive and well and dynamic in places like China, Korea, etc. But I think we have to face the fact that while it's still an important force in the U.S., very important force, it's a very minoritarian force. So how do we speak to Bhaskar's point? I believe that what we have to be thinking about and I apologize, this is so vague, but it corresponds, unfortunately, to my low level of uh, understanding of what to do about this. I think we need to start thinking about political forms that are maybe organized on an urban basis, maybe on citywide movements that can speak to what is needed now. We have the forces, actually, but the forces are scattered and they are not collaborative. And I think one of the fabulous things about the Women's March, which was initially organized under rather vague and you can almost say conservative premises, it was an astounding event in that the people who came out there had their own militancy, their own anger, and they were looking around and saying, basically, I'm with you. I'm in the women's movement supporting trans, supporting the social cuts, fighting the racism of the Trump administration, and putting a central focus on immigration. This kind of platform is kind of implicit. What is the difficulty, I think, is how we're going to actually find the way in which this kind of formation of multiple forces supporting one another, which is the basis for any of them to win today, how can we actually make it happen in actual institutions when the problem is so far that the particular pieces are themselves not particularly organized in a way that could naturally have, say, representatives come together in an urban central institution. We have informal labor organizing in work groups in the city that's of kind of prefigurative labor organizations. And of course, there's Black Lives Matter, there's women's organizations, but somehow there's a huge gap between the resistance and actually institutional mutual support, which requires institutions. You're listening to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. This is our inaugural podcast, and we have Robert Brenner and Bhaskar Sunkara, the editor of Jacobin Magazine, with us. Bhaskar, Bob has just laid out a whole series of things. I'd like to get your take on that. I wanted to just say that we're in quite a different situation than we were prior to the incredible campaign of Bernie Sanders in 2016, because he didn't create the left, he revealed that it existed. And that's what we're dealing with right now. And you're saying we need something far more substantive to make this sentiment and support meaningful. Right. And I'm not saying substantive in the sense that we need something necessarily more radical right away, though, of course, I do also believe that. I mean, substantive in terms of rootedness. So it's telling that even during the Sanders campaign, a campaign 
by someone who's a self-described democratic socialist who was politicized. I shouldn't even say self-described because he was politicized in large part through his experience in Ypsil and the Young People's Socialist League. So this is someone with a deep root in the American socialist tradition. His campaign did support at times the striking Verizon workers. In fact, their campaign was largely timed to the New York primary um, and to all the energy and enthusiasm around Sanders. But it wasn't a main part of his stump speech, the importance of unions, the importance of fighting to get things like card check, that all segments of labor bureaucracy have wanted for a long time, and I think would actually be substantial gain. It was more in these kind of broader, more nebulous kind of populist terms. So I think that's very telling. Now, I think Bob is getting at something very, very intelligent when he says that, all right, we need to go and think about the city as a organizing sphere. And of course, he's not talking about municipalism. He's talking about ways in which you can connect employed and unemployed workers across sectors and kind of like almost city central organization and things of that nature, which almost resembles what the labor movement was able to do in the 19th century. And in a way, as we've gone forward in time, we've gone backwards in terms of conditions in which labor is organizing as the gains of the 20th century and some of those institutional arrangements have been eroded. So I think that's important to think about, the alliances between unemployed and employed workers. But fundamentally, we're still talking about the need to get people to take industrial action, to disrupt and challenge capital at the point of production. And at the moment, I don't think our politics are going in that direction. I don't think that anything that's now emerging in embryonic form, even though they're promising in their own right, things like the Women's March, things like the other uh, social movements that have emerged, I don't think we're actually moving necessarily closer to disruptive action at the point of production. And the places where we have seen these actions taking place have largely been promising events in, let's say, the public sector with Chicago Teachers Union and things of that nature. And with the rise of what I do think is almost inevitability, the rise of national right to work and things like that, that's all directed against public sector unionism. So I think we're in a very tough situation. We need to look at other examples. We need to look at basically ways in which labor can create fronts to circumvent labor law and things like that and, and new forms of organizing. But we can't kind of make a B route around this problem of not having a militant labor movement with a broad conception of unionism. And look what we're seeing now with Trump. We're seeing significant sectors, not just isolated locals and a few small leaders and so on, but significant segments of the labor movement being behind where the majority of the country is in terms of how they're relating to Trump. You're seeing building trades willing to take some crumbs from Trump, which will largely be substandard wages below regular prevailing union wages for some short-term benefits for their members. And it's going to hurt their own members, much less the broader working class in the medium and long term. You're probably going to see that with other sectors, too. It's going to be very tough for the UAW to resist Trump the way they should if Trump's trying to create all these measures to lure in even more foreign auto manufacturers to the United States and things of that nature. So I do think that pessimism is important. Where I am optimistic is I believe there is a social majority for our politics right away, not just a majority that we can develop and so on and so on. No, I believe that a majority of this country would support social democratic policies in this country. The question is, how do we create the social power to help any future administration implement them and to hold them accountable? 
This is a really big problem. And as we saw during the campaign, Trump was able to get a lot of support from that section of the working class that's been left behind, that perhaps at one time did have the kind of good manufacturing jobs. He and now his chief strategist, Steve Bannon, has said, we're going to invest so much money in infrastructure and bring back those jobs. What they don't say, of course, is that they will undercut union wages. There'll be no protection. I was wondering if you could address this aspect of it, Bob, and also the question for many of us who've been following labor for such a long time, is this a terrible thing that the unions are going to have to find a new way that the labor law will not be in their favor and they, on the other hand, might be rid of the shackles of labor law and go back to wildcat kind of days, or am I just being a dreamer? Fortunately, we don't have to answer that question directly, meaning that, unfortunately, it's probably going to be the case that we're going to get this broad anti-labor legislation, and it's very hard to in any way or shape or form to say this will put us in a better condition, even though like the IWW and great militants in the first half of the 20th century refused to have any kind of government regulation of the labor movement such as came in with the NLRB in the 30s. National Labor Relations Board. Yes. A couple fragmentary answers to the things that you and Bhaskar are raising. I think the first... And again, I think probably the bottom line that we'll need repeating again and again and again is that the way forward at this moment, although it seems commonsensical to unite all the anti-Trump forces together, which would put the movement behind the Democratic Party, having the Democratic Party in the leadership, I think... First and foremost, any new movement must proceed from an understanding of where the Democratic Party is and not to delude themselves as to where it was for half a century. It really is a neoliberal party. And the shocking thing about this is the consistency and tenacity with which the Democrats are sticking with this line. Above all, you can see it in their refusal to grant the tiniest concession to the Sanders movement, which after all had millions and millions of votes and would be one natural place to look to amplify the base of the party to be sure to win 2018, 2020. But they have made it a point, A, in general, politically, to hold Sanders heavily responsible for the defeat, not only. Of course, they're charging the Russians with it, too. But in all the ways possible not to take responsibility for losing because of their inability to appeal to this broad part of the population, they are, as we saw, it's Schumer, it's Pelosi again. And miraculously, in my view, it helps to send a good communication to the emerging movement, they won't even let Keith Ellison be head of the Democratic National Committee and help to organize the party, which you would think they would want to do to activate the Sanders forces and so on. Even Schumer sees the sense of this. But from everything we can see, it's likely that actually Ellison will be defeated. 
by a pro-Hillary Democrat, even if a very militant one like the former Secretary of Labor. So on the one hand, the Democrats are not going to lead the fight against Trump. They're going to try to consolidate a majority by moving rightward and taking the so-called moderate wing of the Republican Party, meaning the better off suburban voters who they did very well with last election and take even more of them to avoid having to confront capital and finance and so on on labor issues. So that's one side of it. On the other hand, I think Trump is going to be a more attractive force, sad to say, than we think. On the one hand, the day-to-day operation is so ramshackle and so self-destructive, it is quite possible that in the form of operation, the Trump people will undermine themselves and prevent themselves from getting off the ground. On the other hand, because the Democrats really are not going to put forward an alternative, if the Trump alternative is allowed to see the light of day, and I think they don't know yet what they want to do, but they already have done something incredible politically, which is something that we've been for, is to get rid of the trade deals. They got rid of the Pacific trade deal, and they're going to move against NAFTA. And these are things, essentially, that we were demanding. Bhaskar is unsure that they're actually going to move against NAFTA. Well, well, I mean, it's not necessarily that. I mean, they're going to move against maybe the overarching trade architecture, which is, of course, a major part of the post-war order, this kind of uh, trade architecture. But they're just going to replace it with bilateral trade agreements that are going to be even more free of uh, labor restrictions and whatnot. And I wouldn't necessarily say that the left at least shouldn't have been for the repeal of NAFTA and these other deals by any means from any direction. We're not protectionists. We're against this free trade deal because we think it undermines the position of the working class. In other conditions, we might be for certain free trade deals in the context of managing a capitalist state. Like Sweden was a full of free trade. So I think it's a little bit too simple to say that he's by accident carrying out parts of our agenda. I would say this, though, and this is where maybe my optimism does come out. I still believe that if there's two people sitting at a table and one wants to institute social democracy in the United States, the other one, their project is an ethno-nationalism. I think the social democrat still has a better starting point to win a popular majority. Now, as far as the Democrats moving rightward, I would say that following what we've seen in Europe, for example, it makes sense that when the populist right is in power, the center left does move to the right. Now, I think with the Democrats is a little bit different in that I think you're going to both see some semblance of what even might appear to be a leftward movement of doubling down on the social inclusion part of the Democratic Party and resisting some of Trump's nativism, while at the other hand, moving rightward on issues of political economy to try to win over moderate segments of the capitalist class that disagree with Trump on trade and are afraid of his restrictive immigration policies and things like that. So I think you'll both see a leftward and a rightward movement at the same time. Yes, but two things about that. I didn't mean to say that Trump was going to be an answer to the slightest degree for the working class. But what I meant to say, if I didn't quite say it, was that the politics that he's putting forward will nonetheless 
attract a lot of the and confirm a lot of his base. And that this means that there is a challenge to the left. But I totally agree with Bhaskar. But that we're back to the question of if we want to defeat a right-wing populist anti-neoliberal position, defeat it with a left-wing socialist anti-neoliberal position, we are back to the issue of the core of that resistance. I think, again, when I said fragments, I think one fragment that we need to look to, as Bhaskar has emphasized quite properly, coming back again and again to what are, even though they're much smaller than in the past, if you look at some of our strongest forces, they remain in the handful of what you might call left activist unions today. And there was a powerful and very impressive unionist for Bernie politics, which now needs to find a way forward that is not going to be completely dependent on any particular sort of electoral effort. This is what is going to be difficult. The normal route for the trade unions is to look to a political leadership for the social policies that they need. And they still need to do this. But we have a preliminary issue, which is to organize the power of working people, which means inevitably strikes, support for those strikes, bringing together people in the anti-immigration movement, the black movement, and the labor movement. We have nurses. We had the telephone unions. We had the teachers. We had the transport workers and hopefully a broad range of public workers. This is a much, much weaker core than we used to have, but it's something. And why it's important and why, you know, I think what Bhaskar was emphasizing in pushing again and again the importance of the labor movement, even though the labor movement is much weakened, is they are already organized. They already have forms that could be, haven't been for quite a while, but could be brought into motion in struggles against employers, which are where social power is actually created. And so if we could somehow find a way to move through struggles to some kind of forms of urban, trans-urban organization, we could be in much better shape. Difficult. Right. But now we're back to the classic kind of problem that you know, obviously, very, very well through decades of work, which is that we have a party in which our labor movement is organized that sees the employer class as, if not just a major, then the dominant part of its coalition, segments of the employer class. Then you have a labor movement within that tent that at various moments has forgotten that its antagonism needs to be against the employer class. So this is a hard thing to overcome. And I think part of it is maybe we should conceptualize a way in which this left populist energy around Bernie Sanders can be wielded in such a way that it actually directs some of its ire towards the employer class with its allies in the union movement. So one way to think about it is this. You saw the anger recently at the Uber CEO for collaborating with the Trump administration. You saw this connection between here, look, Silicon Valley will sell us out for nothing. They use the rhetoric of social inclusion, but 
they, in fact, really only are accountable to their bottom line. This kind of populist anger, I think, can go in a very good direction because employers need, at some point, play ball with Donald Trump. He's in power. They need to help shape his legislation. They need to make sure he doesn't veer too far in any sort of direction. They need to negotiate those things. And a lot of people are going to call for a more intransigent position they can't possibly take. And I think that's some promise, what we saw, that actions against Uber CEO. And I think this raises the other question when we go back to talking about how to organize. And you've rightly both brought up the problems within the Democratic Party, but we have a system in which it's very difficult to organize outside of the two-party system. And on the other hand, concentrating on labor. But in doing that, we have to address the whole sort of nature of the period that we're in, in which we have a large precariat or gigariat or however you want to talk about it, people who are not gainfully employed in jobs where they have union protection. I think Bosker was absolutely right to bring up the Uber story, because what you saw there was as they essentially scabbed on the New York Taxi Alliance, who was supporting the resistance to the ban on immigration, I think it was I don't know how many tens of thousands of Uber accounts were deleted with the help of social media. But this is really an important issue to take up as we go forward organizing using both the power of community and the power of labor. So what do you think about that? And, of course, addressing this really thorny issue, the latest Jacobin is the party we need, but we have a different party in power. So maybe you could both take a stab at looking at sort of the ramifications of those issues. Well, it's getting harder and harder as we refine the questions because where we're at is the gap between where we see we need to go and where we are today. And it requires, on the one hand, important initiatives from a weak labor movement, most of which is not used to fighting capital at all. I think the unions that I mentioned have a fairly good record on that score and could move further. One thing that I think we really need to do is strengthen the links between those militants in the unions that have been carrying out God bless them, a strategy that has long ago been recognized to be a centerpiece of any sort of resistance, which is to organize the rank and file of the unions independently of the officials, not to operate, not to act independently of them, but to force the officials and to force the unions as a whole into struggle. And in the unions that we talked about, For example, the Chicago teachers, there was a long period in which a movement from below within the union was struggling to break the power of a moderate leadership, which wasn't that bad, but in national terms, but was quite not up to the struggle, and now took control of the union and was able to once at least carry out a very, very dramatic, if again, limited strike. But what they did, I think the beauty of the Chicago teachers, it's also the sadness about it, is their ability to link the kind of forces that will have to be brought together in any powerful alliance from below. That is the union, the teachers, the parents, the students. And the movement has to be not just, obviously, for the teacher's the union to defend the teachers' conditions, it has to be to keep schools open. 
to allow kids to get to school safely. A series of social issues have to be combined with the economic issue. They're natural alliances, but the forces that you're up against note it is Obama's closest ally in Chicago that has been leading the fight against the teachers' union that puts in stark relief what we're up against. Rahm Emanuel represents the Democratic Party. He is like one of the leading forces in transforming the party from Clinton 1 to today in a hardline neoliberal direction. He makes no apologies for it. So what that means is a much more difficult but at least clear-cut task of trying to unite rank-and-filers, trying to force the officials to fight, trying to say that a successful fight is only possible if we break beyond the narrow interests of the union workers, which we never would consider narrow in themselves, but if they're going to have power, they're going to have to make these links. We're at a point, I realize, in this discussion where the gap between what we have and what we need is rather gaping and rather intimidating. But I think that's where we have to be looking. Oscar? These questions of how to revitalize the labor movement and how to build something on a national scale are, of course, too hard to tackle definitively. And I think Bob laid out the terms quite well. So my thinking kind of falls to what does the socialist left do in the short term? Because that's something we could actually have a lot of control over. Now, DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, and I'm a vice chair of of DSA, just hit 16,000 members. Well, the Bolsheviks had just 16,000 members in April 1917. 16,000 members, which is probably the largest a socialist group has been since pre-Khrushchev speech CP in 1956, I guess, in this country. But where are these people and who are they demographically? How are they coming to the socialist movement? They're coming in ones and twos. They're not coming in mass. So this gets back to the constant thing we've both been returning to, which is this question of rootedness and power and leverage. And right now, a lot of the people being drawn to the left are people being drawn from broadly the middle classes or kind of the D-class sons and daughters of the professional class. They're not being drawn to the movement as workers or people from one sector that was more militant or through the process of industrial collective action and things of that nature. And that's a problem that we need to overcome. And in the Trump era, though, I think it only encourages a potential return to a excessive and single-minded focus on just anti-oppression politics at the campus levels or elsewhere. That's not to say this politics isn't important and that we should just ignore all of their struggles except for the immediate economic ones. But it does tell us that if the new socialist movement means people getting recruited in ones and twos and not leaving kind of their strata, not figuring out how to relate to a broader labor movement or broader working class currents, then we're in trouble. And I don't know exactly what the solution is. I would imagine it has to do with a lot of directing these 16,000 people in DSA and other places towards worker centers, towards local immigrant rights centers, towards kind of a new vision of maybe at times even politicized social service work and things of that nature. But figuring out a way to develop a class base to this movement. And part of this, I believe, is through electoral struggles, 
which does involve, I believe, working at times within Democratic primaries, but doing so not in the old Harringtonite realignment kind of strategy way of just trying to elect better Democrats or to create this new kind of labor left wing of the Democratic Party and make it hegemonic, but in the sense of being willing to develop our own basis of funding, our own platforms and programs, then hold not only elected officials, because a lot of these campaigns won't end up winning, but these campaigns to the discipline of a membership organization. And I think this would be a very different use of the Democratic or perhaps even Republican ballot lines. And when available, and I think we should be looking at independent ballot lines, especially in cities that are dominated by Democrats in places like New York, that this strategy, I believe, is a way forward and a shortcut to us actually figuring out how to develop a base to knock on doors and canvas people and hold open town meetings and things of that nature. But the main thing is just not being content with recruiting people in ones and twos off the internet and off social media, but thinking about how to make this much deeper. Because I'd rather have fewer and better than have just more and more people that are desperately connected. Obviously, I would like to have more and better. More and better, and also better, better. But I like very much where we're going on this, and we're going to have to wrap up soon. But we're now into the area of both the hope that exists today, some would say the revival of social hope, and the reality of how difficult this next period is. And I'll let you come back on that, Robert Brenner. Just very briefly, following up on what Bhaskar is saying, I think the electoral road is a very tricky one. And I think Bhaskar is right to look ahead to possible ways in this very impoverished institutional system that we have in the U.S., which makes first-past-the-post such a dominant feature of the elections and makes it so difficult to run as a third party. I think it's good to be thinking about that, but I'm sure he would agree that part of the question, (laughs) the biggest part of the question, is to get to the point where you could conceivably have candidates that would actually be able to challenge. Just wanted to close a gap that Bhaskar left open was that I think one very positive social development, it's actually a very negative social development, but positive for building the left, is that this mass of people who are the same kind of people who were in Occupy, who were in Sanders, who are now flocking to DSA, or really Jacobin study groups, or strike support, or fighting the Trump immigration ban. These people are not unlike, very, very crucial to distinguish them from their forebears in the new left of the 60s and 70s. These were middle class people who had a very good opportunity not only to organize, but to go into middle-class occupations and ultimately to take leading roles in social democratic, namely Democratic Party organizations, if supposedly on the left. Today, that option is frankly not there. One of the reasons we're continuing to get a radicalism and get it expressed politically, not just in terms of despair, is that the people who have traditionally formed kind of the liberal social reform base are no longer able to be middle class. If you look at the analyses of jobs that are being created since 2000, they're practically none. 
that are appropriate to college-educated people. I mean, you need much more than that to get anywhere. And so what you have are people who are going to come into the movement and I think will be willing to make a long-term commitment. And then the question is, can we figure out a way to have these progressive unions and particularly rank-and-file oriented unions allying with worker centers, allying with centers of immigration, allying with, and I think a huge thing still, women's rights, reproductive rights, gay rights. These are central working class issues that can unite people very, very broadly. To take that step is is the difficult one. Well, I think that's a very good way to begin, and this is the beginning of Jacobin Radio, and this is the kind of in-depth conversations we'll be bringing to you. Thanks very much to my guest tonight, Bhaskar Sunkara, editor and founder of Jacobin Magazine, and UCLA historian Robert Brenner. Thanks, Susie. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Jacobin Radio. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. Jacobin Radio is produced, directed, and engineered by Alan Minsky. Thanks also to overall coordinator, Micah Utrecht. You can find us on iTunes or wherever else you look for your podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends. The more, the better. I'm Susie Wiseman. Thanks for listening to Jacobin Radio.